So, first question, what do we do when there's a clear medical route to be taken for the child, which nonetheless conflicts with the parent's wishes? That's already a tease to Imogen, because I've put the words in there, a clear medical route, as though that in itself <laughs> answers the issue. But Imogen is going to tell us why that's not the case. Imogen, what would you okay. like to say? Well, I think... Um, the, the first thing to think about is, what do you mean when you say there's a clear medical answer? Um, and in lots of these cases, there is a medical answer in the sense that they know what certain treatments might achieve and what they might not be able to achieve. They might know what the side effects are. They might know the various treatment options. Obviously, the doctors are experts in all of that. But those usually aren't the points of conflict in these cases. The points of conflict are what I would consider questions of value. So questions like, is it better to take a tiny risk that might pay off um, even though it comes at the, the likelihood that there'll be a lot of suffering. And that, to me, is not really a medical question. That is a question about how do you want to live your life. It's a value mm. question. And so, to me, it's often difficult in these cases to tease these apart, but it's important to see them as different questions, the medical questions, and also the other types of questions, the value questions. And when we come to a clear medical route being explained, where is the problem in terms of communication that may arise between the medics on the one side and the parents on the other? I think there's lots of ways in which you can see there might be problems. So one of them is certainly that doctors have far more knowledge about these things, and these things are tremendously complex a lot of the time. And so for lots of us to understand, for most of us who aren't doctors to understand, it's probably really difficult. So usually doctors are going to work very hard and they're very good at explaining mm. things in a fairly clear, simple way, but they're necessarily simplifying. But I think the complexities come with parents not wanting to believe it. That's one part of it. Yep. You're, you're desperately hoping that it's not true. Um, I think parents are likely to latch on to hope where there's a tiny bit of hope, when the doctors are maybe even trying to cushion the blow. So they're saying, well, there's a tiny chance, but we don't think it's very likely. Of course, if you're the parent, you're going to grab that and, and run with that. We also know there's lots of research shows that people aren't very good at understanding statistics and mm -hmm. we're not very good at understanding big numbers. It's just the way people are. So when you tell somebody there's a one in a million chance, they're not very good at understanding what that really might mean. Yep. On top of which, people have varying levels of education and understanding. They put different weights on all sorts of different things. So there's all these complexities even in getting across the clear medical um, information that people need to understand before they can even begin thinking about what they want to do. So if I can just summarise that, from the doctor's perspective, they are approaching the case on the medical evidence available to them, the research that they have that informs their decision-making process. They'll be working as a part of a team, so they're looking at an all-round medical perspective. And the breakdown between the doctors and the, and the parents can be because the parents know the child as an entity. Mm. They may not be well-versed in the research that's been spoken about. They may not be embraced in talking about the research. Parents can be right about their child and wrong about the research. Yeah. And unless there's good communication between the two, there's a potential for there to be effectively a trust breakdown at exactly the point where there needs to be a dialogue that's effective for the child. Yeah, and I think this must be exacerbated for doctors when uh, parents, understandably, we would probably all do this, are going to go to Google and try to see what they can do, particularly yeah. in a situation where you're feeling disempowered, um, there's nothing you feel that you can do that's constructed. The one thing you might think you can do is sit in Google and hope that you find out something that the doctors don't know about mm. so that you think that you're helping. And then doctors, I think, have to have this added complexity where they have to navigate information coming back to them from parents and negotiating what's true, what isn't true, um, as an extra layer, I think, in 2019 that wasn't yeah. there in the past. Yeah. 
Okay, let's have a look then. Um, this case, NHS Trust B, Mr. and Mrs. B, is that of assistance in trying to look at this issue, or should we move on? Mm. Move on? Okay. Right. These ones I put up um, because these are the ones that have hit the headlines, and it very much picks up on what Imogen has just been saying. One of the reasons why there are so many of you now, and I suspect so many online, is because it was when the significant cases over the last three years have hit the news, because social media is so active, that we all started thinking about what was going on in hospitals, which would otherwise be that forum of privacy for the parents, the child, and the doctors. So what we would have read through these headlines is what the courts have decided when that conflict becomes public, uh, because there is disagreement, and then it has to come to the court process. Other cases where it may need to be more straightforward, so Jehovah Witness cases, blood transfusions, what, what do we have to say about the type of decision-making the court will be involved in those? Yeah, so that's the kind of decision that, that Jo's meaning when she says there's a clear medical yeah. answer. There's a clear medical answer in those cases, which is the child needs blood, and if they don't get blood, then potentially they will die or they become very, very ill. So there's no, the, these are cases where there's no complexity almost about yeah. that. There might be alternative options, but they may not be on the table. So autologous trans, uh, transfusions and so on, but that might not be possible. But these are cases that I mean that are questions of value. And so from the medical perspective, this is a case where there is a clear thing that needs to be done. There's not multiple options to choose amongst, there's just one thing. Yep. But the parents have an objection that's not based on information, it's based on belief. And this is where I think, this is what these cases that come to the headlines are often about. They are a clash of value against the medical opinion about what is needed to achieve a particular health outcome. Okay, I think we click. And this is the test, effectively, that all the cases are decided upon. It's something that we've put up here because although we all loosely talk about what the courts do, which is applying the decisions in the best interest of the child, how often is it that any of us listening, watching, learning, reading, actually grasp what the best interest test is? And it's going to be up there for a little while because it sounds simple when you say it, but in practice, it's actually a very hard thing to imply when you've got a real family in front of you. But it is a test that so far has stood the test of time, literally, because it's the best guide that a court has to try to come to a decision-making process. So you can see here that the courts will be looking at the welfare in the widest sense. So not just the medical perspective, which is that which the doctors bring to the case, not just the social and um, psychological makeup of the child or indeed the family from which the child has sprung, but they're looking at the na nature of the medical treatment that's proposed, they're you know, looking at outcome, individual patient's attitude, and the reason that's so important is that for every case that comes before the courts, the facts are going to be different, as different as the child is, as different as the parents are, and as different as the family that wants the court to make decisions that they think are best in their child's best interest, but which the medics may, may disagree. So the best interest um, test is currently that which we operate because it tries to guide us through um, where we are going. Imogen, what would we have to say about this and its current terminology fitting the way in which the courts approach these individual cases? 
So I think that the courts um, are really, have developed quite a lot of detailed jurisprudence about how the best interest tests work. I think that they've spent you know, a number of decades building on the work of, of the different courts. And they have a really nuanced, thoughtful perspective on it. I think that judges are often underrated in the capacity to actually understand the complexities in situations like this. But in fact, we need to remember that they are the ones who day in, day out deal with these. Yep. So of anybody, they're the ones, apart from the hospitals, who actually go through these scenarios over and over and over again. And they build up lots of knowledge um, uh, about what's really important and how mm -hmm. to navigate it. Um, we know that when they think about things like welfare, they think very, very broadly. Um, so one thing that um, they've been thinking about is the relationships that the child has. These are really important, that they realise that there is damage that comes to a child or benefits that come to a child from the relationships that they're in. So when we're thinking about welfare, they're not just thinking narrowly about what is good for the child. They're thinking about the child in the context of his or her relationships and how there will be implications. That's an, I think that's a good example from Regi of a way in which the court thinks about this with a tremendous amount of, of nuance. And they have to do with particularly complicated situations where there will be implications for other family members. Yep. And when they do that, they're not allowed to weigh the family member's interests against the child because they have to be focused on the child. But they can take account of them in the sense of how will it affect the child if their relationships are harmed is a good aspect to it. I think that the courts are very good at trying to listen to doctors and take account of what parents say. So it's easy to think that when they're thinking of best interests, that they're just listening to the doctors, because often the doctors are the ones whose opinion with which they, they concur, but not always. I think the best interest test allows them to, and they do, really listen to parents when they're thinking about what to do. Yeah. And the courts, I mean, we're going to get to the balance between the parents, the doctors, the child and the judge in a moment. But before we leave this point, the significant thing I'd like to lay the groundwork now is that when the court is applying this best interest approach, it is listening from the hospital doctors, of course. It is listening from the parents, of course. But what's not always apparent is how often it hears from the child as an independent entity, although they may not have the capacity to speak and talk in their own rights. They are, in these cases... Um, entitled to and are uh, allocated their own individual legal representation and their own effectively welfare voice, the best interest voice for them, which is their guardian. So it's not as simple as simply having the hospital on the one side and the parents on the other. There is always, at the core of this decision-making process, a voice for the child given to that child which is able to stand independently of what anyone else may have to say about it. And even if the parents didn't bring, and they will do of all people, even if the hospital didn't bring, and we would hope they would, a concept of the child as a part of the family, that will be one of the critical roles that the guardian and the guardian's legal representative brings to these cases because their obligation is to understand how the child fits within that family network, how the family have been torn apart by a diagnosis that's so difficult to tolerate, how the family are coping with the prospect of having a severely unwell child, which they can't hold, love, bath, feed, have birthday parties for, and how that stress that a family has gets infiltrated into the hospital system, because whereas the doctors deal with the child intently and compassionately and humanely for the length of time they're on their shift, they have another life, and the families don't. And so that degree of stress that the families bring to their decision-making process is something which should be acknowledged, and certainly the role of the child within the family is something that should be embraced and is embraced by their own separate representation. So I think it's worth just bringing that up there so that no one thinks when, for example, they look at the scales of the justice, 
which is often the way people think about the court process, that it's simply weighing one argument against the other. The voices that are heard are very, very more nuanced and plentiful than that simple scales of justice image represents. And that brings us on to this one. Now, I wanted this slide in because I've already alluded to it. Um, it's, it's the thing I've been banging on about in many a lecture, as you'd have gathered, which is the central value of a child in the type of proceedings that I'm involved in, which is they aren't a possession. They're not a chattel. They are a person in their own right. And when I was discussing this with Imogen yesterday, it's one of the challenges of speaking to a big brain who's also an academic and can talk over me and beat me in argument. But she threw out to me the challenge of, why did I even have that up there as a person, not a property? What was I saying about rights? So go on, throw, throw it out. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, uh, so one of in my, um, the work that I used to do before I worked on, on this area was I, uh, my work is about owning body parts and, and yeah. whether you should treat bodies as property, which is a whole other conversation. But one of the things that's interesting about the language of property and why I think Joe's invoked it here and why people invoke it when they say, it's my body, you, know, you, say it, you hear it in abortion talk and you hear it in lots of other contexts, is it's a way of saying, I've got strong rights. And not just strong rights, I've got strong exclusionary rights, because that's what property is. It's my house, you can't come in. It's my car, you can't drive it, stay out. That's what property effectively means at its simplest. And when people talk about children, and they invoke the sort of idea of saying it's not property, like Joe is, they're trying to say, you don't control your child. You don't exclude other people. You don't have that kind of control over them as though they are a thing that you're allowed to exercise over all the other things that you possess. And the reason she's saying that is instead what we need to do is think about them the way the law thinks about them, which is they are a person in their own right. And parents don't own them. Parents have responsibilities. Yep. And there's lots of judicial statements where they say parents have rights. But really what we should think about them as is parents have responsibilities. And those responsibilities are contingent. They're contingent on you doing a good enough job of taking care of the child. And I think the reason this is important to remember is that's why the, the, the court has a role, which is to step in when parents are not meeting their responsibilities. Yeah. And in terms of... That sounds so sensible and eloquent when Imogen puts it that way, but I'm going to throw it back to you, because if someone told you what to do in respect of, I don't know, Charlie Aardvark, and that Charlie Aardvark was your child, the first thing you would say is, that's my child you're talking about? That would be the first instinctive response. How dare you? How dare you talk about my child in the way that you are, as though they are um, a simply a, state, a, a patient or, a, or a something on your rotor list that you've got to manage? And that, I think, is where the logical, legal approach to the child having an entity, a legal entity, um, in its own right is so difficult to actually acknowledge when you're the parent in that situation because everything in us when we are parents drives us towards protection, embracement, trying to look after them to the best of our ability. And so I think just by putting it up there, it's, it, it seems dismissive of how we think of our children when we are parents, but in fact it's not because children do, I'm afraid, have bad experiences, as all of you have known, been to my previous lectures, and we can't always rely on parents to do their best for them. And that's exactly why the court has this protective jurisdiction, and that's exactly why the best interest tests properly recognises that there can be different views between all of those that appear in front of them. So I think that's just the reality there. 
Right, this is when we were trying to balance. So when we were talking about this, we were talking about where, um, how we weight different perspectives effectively. Where would we go with that? So, yep, palliative care. So this goes back, I think, to what Imogen was talking about in terms of value. If the family and the medics are trying to make a decision about how life is best lived, however short it is, how do the medics, how do the courts try to evaluate the concept of coming to die? How do they evaluate whether in the parents' wishes it might be better to have them die at home with them, although that might be more painful in the short term because palliative care can't extend, or is it better that they may want them to remain in hospital, attached to everything that keeps them going, but the quality of life is so reduced? Nonetheless, the end may still be the same, but it's prolonging that period in between. And how can we quantify which of those decisions is right unless we understand that there's a value basis within it? And so far as the doctors are concerned, we've just been discussing quite frankly outside, there's going to be a test about how many children they have on the ward, whether or not they believe that they're sustaining life in the right way, whether the sustaining life actually brings a disbenefit. And there can be a massive range of differences, can't there, between the medics and the parents when they grasp what the child is experiencing. Is that a fair yeah. comment? Yeah, I mean, I think these are questions... Like, the really interesting thing um, about this... I've been thinking about it since we talked yesterday, actually. The really interesting thing about these decisions is these are questions about which we would all be able to form a view. So you probably have your own views about when you're coming to the end of your life, mm. would you want longer life but, and you'd endure some pain to have it? So it might be you want to say goodbye to people or you've got things you still want to do. Yeah. And other people don't want that. They want an easeful death or a quick death. Um, some people might want to be really present. Some people might not want to be really present. These are really subjective. And this is something that we would say people have subjective, different views about this because we're all different and we're capable of forming plans and, and we have different values. But the problem with children's situations is we don't know what they are. Mm. We don't know how they feel about these value questions. So one thing I think about the best interest test on questions of this is you're partly trying to guess for them, in a sense, yeah. and choose well for them but you're, you're choosing in lieu of them because they can't tell you. Because we're talking about critically ill, very young children. We're not talking about older children who might be able to express a view. That's one side to it that's really important to think about. And the other is there's no clear answer to these questions, and there isn't a medical answer to these questions. They are questions about how do you want your life to go. Fundamentally, yeah. they have to be. But then the other interesting dimension to that is we each of us only face that question once about our own death. So maybe we face it in relation to a loved one, so we see it close up. But doctors see it day in and day out, so they mm. actually have an interesting perspective on the value question. So you can think about it in the abstract, what will I want at the end? But I'm only guessing how I'll experience it. I think it's like giving birth. You think you might be able to guess what it's like, but I can assure you that it, you probably can't. That was my experience. <laughs> and even the second time around, I was like, wasn't like the first time. <laughs> that, that's how it is. Now, but doctors are the ones who've seen it day in, day out. So in mm. some ways, they've actually got an interesting extra perspective on the value question of how do people tend to respond 
when they say, I don't want chemo, or they say, I don't want this, mm. or I do want this. So you've got this really complex dimension there about the doctors are medical experts, but they're also actually experientially, they've got a bit more experience about the value question, mm. but they can never tell you subjectively what is good for you. I, I think pretty much people are the best judges, except when they, you know, there's ways in which they might have problematic uh, reasoning, but people know what they want for themselves. But we can't work that no. out here because no. that person can't speak. But the parents may, it depends on how old the child is, have a better idea about what their child might want if yeah. they were able yeah. to verbalise it, which gives them an expertise which the doctors don't have. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why parents' views are taken very seriously by the courts but, and ought to be taken very seriously because, in fact, if anybody's going to be a good guess about what is subjectively good for the child, you might think it's the parent, right? You might think if it's a slightly older child and the parent knows them a bit, empirically, mm. they might know more. But if you take that off the table, even then, if it's just a subjective question about what would someone value, what would this person want for themselves, nobody is potentially better placed than anybody else. Yep. And so you might then also say, well, if everybody else is equal, because of the other reasons, then you should go to the parents first. There's lot, then you can add in all these other reasons on the, on the side of the parents, I think. And just before we leave the subject, because the reason this subject has engaged everyone is because the conflict situations are those which most people are aware of. But it's important to point out that it's very, very, very few cases that ever get to the point of coming to court because the exchange and information that Imogen is talking about is ordinarily resolved because there's a really effective dialogue between the doctors and the parents in the hospital before a situation of crisis has emerged because it should be about respectful, informed dialogue where the doctors properly understand that this child is unique and belongs in a family had they had the opportunity and the life skills in order to thrive within it. And the parents are the best people to understand what a good life for that child would be and a good death for that child would be. Whereas the, the medical staff know what the process is about. They can explain different stages in the treatment in a way which a parent may not understand. And if that dialogue happens in a balanced, mutually respectful way, then that's when you have the agreements arising. It's only when that's not happening for a number of reasons that you end up with the breakdown of communication. And once that happens, it's really difficult to restore it because then you're in a situation of fight or flight. And no parent ever runs away from this situation. It's extraordinary how much parents deal with because they will go back day after day after day because that is what they are going to do for their child and no one else will. So I think that's probably where we are on that aspect. So I think this was just current examples. So we have Yates. So that's just a prelude, really, to what everyone would have seen on the streets. And then this one. We weren't sure how many of you would be able to remember this of a little while ago. But the two slides are there. So you have a before and an after. And this was one, if you remember, where the parents had done their research. They were very keen about acquiring a treatment for their child, which wasn't available to them in the hospital where they were. And um, without any criticism of them that we would make, the child wasn't under any protective jurisdiction, they decided that if that couldn't be provided to them in the UK by this hospital, they'd go and get it. And so they did. And it came to the courts because the hospital applied and wanted effectively to have guidance on whether that was appropriate, uh, because the court have a protective duty that can be prospective, not simply uh, retrospective. 
and such this, came, this case came to our attention. And the other reason I particularly wanted to up there is because it's really important when you think about the social media issues that have arisen, not to always think that the court sides with the doctors, because that is not the case. It just tends to be, for obvious reasons, that they are the ones you are going to hear the most of, because that's where the public shout for information and support is likely to be spread out through social media. So that was why I wanted it up there. I'm not sure that there's much more we need to say about it. It was really just an illustrative slide, unless Imogen's got something to add to it. No, I think I think I just reiterate the point that there are absolutely cases where the courts side with parents. So RETI yeah. is a good example of that, where the parents felt that the child shouldn't have any more treatments and the court was prepared to agree with them. The parents mm. later changed their mind and the child did have the treatments. But it isn't the case, even though it often comes across that way, yeah. that it's very much the parents on the back foot and the doctors and, and the courts essentially colluding. And I think it was an interesting thing about the way some of these cases played out in social media was there's a real sense of... Um, uh, big push to say parents have rights and those rights are under assault by courts and doctors essentially banding together as, as a sort of institution. Mm. And I don't think that that's true. I think that the way in which the courts work with parents and the medics is much more about building consensus. And we don't see all the cases that never make it to court, never yeah. make it into the news, precisely because that work has already been done and people have worked constructively with their lawyers and got a solution that everybody can, can cope with. We only see the worst of it, but we shouldn't see that as indicative of what is actually always going on at all. Yeah, it's not to say we can't learn lessons from it, but it would be wrong, I think, to perceive those as being a true exemplar of what goes on across the United Kingdom in these tragic cases uh, week in, week out in different hospitals. So this is something that we've already trailed with you, but it's so important. We wanted to make sure that we reiterated the message. So what happens in courts? We have the parents. And in terms of what they bring to the scenario, what they have is the continuum in the child's life. It's conception, it's birth, it's place in the family, their wishes for it, how it fits in with how the family perceived the child to be and what it could be. They understand the child because they've slept with it, they've woken with it, they've fed it, they've cried with it, they've talked about it, they've shared plans. And all of those issues means that they have judgments about the child which embrace the family concept about what they as a family would have wanted for it. And that is a unique perspective which the parents have, which needs to be respected and acknowledged. Then we have the doctors who bring medical expertise, weighing the risk of treatment, very much reflecting back on what Imogen said right at the beginning of this lecture. Yes, it's right, the doctors will deal with the child as a patient, and they do that and bring skills in that role because for them, they are in that role because they have encountered the scenario before. And if they haven't encountered it before, they most have, they have colleagues they can go to, they will have research they can dip into, and they can deal with all that investigative work having the objectivity and the medical training that means they can look at the data mm. and the material unclouded by emotion, mm. which has a value in terms of giving a rational um, analysis about what the child can and co can't cope with. And they understand the child's medical needs. And Imogen and I wanted to focus on understanding the medical needs. They're the one that understand the SATs charts. They're the one that understands when the child is or isn't coping or may need aspiration and what the consequences of aspiration are. And the reason we've got that pause in the middle is because there's an overlap between those two voices, and that's the court. 
because the court isn't exclusively within the blue zone, isn't exclusively within the yellow zone. It has to hear from both of those perspectives to come to a neutral decision. And the thing missing from there is where's the child in all this? Which brings me back to the importance of recognising that there is always a voice for the child, with which the doctors may disagree, the parents may disagree, but the point that it's there, and the court may disagree, but it doesn't mean to say that the voice isn't there to be heard um, properly and authentically with the same rights to advocacy, the same rights to access to the information, the same right, in fact, to demand additional expert opinions. That means that they are a force to be reckoned with. And when the court is trying to balance where, between the parents and the doctors, the right decision lies, if there is such a thing as a right decision, then the voice of the child through the representatives is going to carry pivotal weight with them because it is, in fact, the only voice that comes centrally from the very, the very person that is going to have to deal with the consequences of the court's decision. So when should the court intervene and when do they in practice? Current test best interests. Now, this is here because one of the consequences of the cases that have hit the media is that there has been a really lively uh, debate about whether the current best interest test is actually the right one. And the reason an alternative has come about is because those parents who have been in this situation of conflict and have been so bruised and traumatised by it have tried to identify a way which other parents may not have to go through the same trauma as they did, hence the suggestion of an alternative test, serious risk of significant harm. Imogen, what would you like to say about that as an alternative? Okay. I mean, I think the, 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 the key question that, that is posed by all of this is when can the court step in? So you would have seen a lot of rhetoric in the in social media about people saying the parents decide. At the end of the day, the parents yeah. decide. But we've seen that the reality is not that, that at some point the court will step in. And that tends to happen because the hospital will go to the court and essentially say, please step in and mediate, essentially, yeah. is, is how it works. It might be the parents, but it's usually the hospital, the, the doctors. And the question that's posed in, in Guard, in the, in, in the Yates case, is whether or not, in fact, the court shouldn't be permitted to step in until a particular threshold is, is reached, which is not until what the parents want to do is actually going to pose a risk of harm to the child. So at the moment, the threshold is whenever the child's welfare is engaged, whenever something might harm the child in the sense of anything that's not in their best interest, it's a very low threshold, the court has the authority to step into the situation. They're not allowed to treat it as, they're not to treat it as, this is the private familial sphere and we don't get to have a say. Um, and what Charlie's Law and various academics are proposing is instead that the threshold should be a bit higher, that the court should have to stay out and that parents should be the final arbiters unless and until what the parents want to do poses a serious risk of significant harm. Some people think the risk has to be serious. Mm -hmm. Some really think it has to be a risk. I'm inclined to think it should be a pretty serious risk of a significant harm, but it's, you know, there's, there's debate about that. And so what they're trying to do is carve out a space where parents... Um, essentially are the trump. They are the final decision maker and not the courts. So to protect the sphere of parental decision making. Mm. That's, that's the nature of the debate that's quite live at the moment. Right. Okay, so the reason why it's up there for debate is that Imogen and I were talking about whether that would really be a difference in practice. 
Because from our understanding, both of talking to those involved in these cases and by looking at the case law, and in fact, because there is so much respect, quite rightly, given by the hospital and the doctors to the parents, in essence, their views will carry so much significant weight. Um, they respect parental autonomy. They have to. Um, it's part of their training. It should be part of their humanity. It should be part of their ability to be a good doctor. So what would change? And they acknowledge that parents are better placed to make value judgments. And the last tick is one that's most important of all because there is always a range of reasonable responses. No person can say you're wrong, you're right. There's always going to be a band of decisions. So if what the doctors are doing before a situation of conflict reaches the court is actually looking at the parents and treating their views with respect and adopting what they say so long as it's not inconsistent with what their professional duties are, where we ask ourselves, and I'm not sure we've really come to a decision on that, is there a difference between giving the parent enough latitude to progress their child's case but without falling to the error of making a mistake that impacts on it? Where would the difference within that lie? So the other possibility we were looking at, exactly, not that simple, is what the impact would be if the test was adopted. Because Imogen was throwing the question out to me when we were talking about how much harder would it be for a parent if, in addition to going to court to argue what they wanted for their child, they were being, in their view, attacked for, by arguing that, being accused of potentially causing their, heart, their child significant harm. How would a parent possibly react where instead of being told by everyone, we know what you're doing, you're doing for the best reasons, but it's not in the child's best interests, which is quite a neutral way of putting things, to be told or to be heard unintentionally harmful things such as what you're doing is going to cause your child significant harm. How painful a thing would that be for a parent to have to hear? And how would they react if that was said to them? If they're in a situation in court where they feel under attack already, if they're in court in a situation where they feel there's an imbalance of power and they are the ones who've been the champions for their child for so long and their voice has been ignored, how much worse must it be if in addition to that fight they are then accused of positively advancing a course that's going to cause harm to their child? And that I think is which we've, we've really grappled with that, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, I think because we see from the cases, but also there's lots of research, so Giles Birchley has shown this, that, that actually doctors often acquiesce to what yeah. parents want, even though they think it's suboptimal. They think it's not quite the best thing, it might not be what they would have advised, but it's not harming. So yeah. very often they, they acquiesce because it's good for the parents, it's not going to make a, a problematic difference to the child. So mm. we already know they do that, they don't bring cases until they actually think, no, this has gone beyond yeah. what I think is tolerable. And that's why um, Joe Bridgman says that the way to understand all these cases, they're actually about professional conscience, that the threshold point is when the doctor says, I can't do that. And we see that in the statements. Um, there's a really moving statement from, from yeah. someone from, from Great Ormond Street where they say, you know, we were doing things that we really didn't feel we could do. Yeah. These are really, it may not make any difference in practice. It wouldn't, if we shifted to a significant harm threshold, it wouldn't actually weed out any cases. It wouldn't change which cases turned up. But it would absolutely change the language in which things were framed. That, yeah. that I think, is a very real risk. And a colleague of mine, Rachel Taylor, has, has 
emphasise the point that it might just be cruel. Like the language that we use, we have to be careful about what that language does mm. to people. And if we change the language and we know it will have a, a harming impact on the parents and make no practical difference, yep. it's not necessarily worth it. So you'd have to think there's got to be something that will be changed, importantly changed by this. Um, and I think the only space in which it makes a real difference is that small set of cases which are about value, the mm. value decisions, where there is space for reasonable disagreement, that it would more overtly say, we leave these decisions to parents and we don't presume where there is space for difference that is non-harming. I think that's, that's the major space in which it would make a difference. Well, it might apply an experimental treatment, might and it? And experimental treatment is a really good example yeah. because that's a value decision about what risks are worth taking. So is it worth it to go through pain and suffering and prolonging something really unpleasant if you've got a tiny chance mm. that it might go well? Now, if you think about that in terms of best interests, when it's a tiny chance, that's quite a different question. Is it best? Well, if it's really lots of suffering and mm. a very small chance, it's quite easy to tip the balance into saying it's not really in their best interests. But if you think about it through the lens of harm, you might say, well, look, it is harming, it's not badly harming. Mm -hmm. It's a bit more than would be best, but it's not badly harming. And you've got this possible benefit of it might all be worth it. Suddenly that question, the way you're framing it, seems quite different. And I think that really chimes with why the, the parents in guard particularly were thinking about it from the harm perspective, which was you know, a small amount of harm, arguably, depending on how you, 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 know, you evaluate yeah. what the harm's gonna be, was worth it. And that, I think, really is a question that we all kind of can face in our own terms, which is the question of value, which risks are worth taking? Yeah. It's not a medical question, really, at all. No, which is why the court had to step in to resolve it. Yeah. So the tipping point. So when we were talking about this, Imogen and I, um, I, I'm afraid, blew, blew in the realities of being a barrister working in the world we are, because what we've talked about so far is coming to court and coming to court, as we do in the Royal Courts of Justice, where these cases are heard, means that you walk along the Strand and you walk through those imposing, fantastic um, doors of the last century. You walk into an enormous hall where your voice echoes, your footsteps echo and clatter as you walk along. And then you find your way to a court. Um, you walk in. You're confronted by a room of which you'd have had no knowledge previously. And the fundamental difference is that walking to that room, if you are a hospital representative, you will have your solicitor and you'll have your barrister because they would have paid for a representation. If you walk into that room acting on behalf of the child as a guardian, you're going to have your solicitor and you're likely to have a barrister as well acting for you. One, therefore, pay for by the state through our taxes, the hospital. The other, pay through our taxes through the legal aid for the child but there is no legal aid for a parent. And how, in this situation, where you've come to a situation of crisis, where you already feel disempowered, where you already feel as though you're not being heard, how must it feel to walk into that environment already knowing that you don't have the opportunity to have your own legal group by choice? Now... The bar and the solicitor's profession are acutely aware of this, and that is why the families do have legal representation, but they act pro bono, precisely because the state doesn't supply that funding. 
And is that an answer? The answer to that question must surely be no, because it still means the parents go through a state of anxiety at the point when legal representation might make a difference in the dialogue with the hospitals to try to prevent the case becoming a crisis. They don't have a team in situ of choice that they've worked with. What happens to them when they haven't had a chance to build up a relationship of trust with the barristers and the solicitors who do act them for pro bono? What happens when those parents in that situation decide that everyone is against them? The establishment is there simply to sign up to the court's view and the hospital view. So they decide not to get qualified legal representatives, but instead go to those people who offer to assist, but come to a system with their own agenda, which perpetuates the lack of communication, the lack of trust, and in fact the conflict. And the reason that it's so important is for every minute any parent spends in that courtroom, they are not spending it with their child. And that is why it's an abomination that the government does not provide legal aid for parents in that situation. And there is no other word to describe it. So when I was considering where there might be a tipping point between best interests and significant harm, if it meant that there could be qualified, paid um, legal representation for the parents without contribution, I'd sign up to it. Because I think that would save a lot of anguish, acrimony, shorten the conflict, extend the parental time with the family, because they would be entitled to be spoken to with respect and privacy by their own team, where there's a second chance to explain what the doctors are saying, a second chance to explain what the court process is but in an environment where there is absolutely a position of, of trust and respect and where the parents can therefore afford to let their barriers down to listen because they're no longer having to be everything. They're no longer having to be parent. They're no longer having to be carer of their co-partner. They're no longer having to be a mini doctor. They're no longer having to be a researcher. They're no longer having to be an advocate. They can just be a parent. And so for me, if I'm thinking about where the balance is, that's quite a significant factor. Um, the other thing I think probably is, I find it quite difficult to say to the parents who said they want a significant harm test when they are the parents who've gone through the very situation to adopt a paternalistic approach and say, actually, do you really want that? Isn't that too hard to bear? Because how would I know? So if we've got the parents of Charlie Gard, if we've got the parents of Alfie saying, we want this because we think it will make better, that's quite a difficult argument, I think, to convincingly say, well, we want to protect other parents from, from having the burden of your decision-making. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question in both those cases whether a significant harm test would have made a difference mm -hmm. as well. So I think on the evidence in the guard case, probably it wouldn't have made a difference. I yeah. think based on the way the court understood um, the, the balance of evidence and what was likely to happen if he was transferred to the US, that they thought that there was harm there. And yeah. I think they would have thought it was significant enough to, to outweigh. Uh, so I think probably in that case, it might not have actually made the difference that the parents... Wanted, and that's the sort of case where if we come back to the language, I think having to have all of the, the um, arguments in that case centre around not the question of what is best, but rather the question of is this a case where what the parents want has slipped into 
a space of harming would mm. have been a very diff different conversation yeah. in the case. And very clearly, um, Charlie's parents suffered immensely um, from the way in which the case was dealt with. There's no question that's true. Would it have made that worse? Quite possibly, I think. It would have been a much worse thing to hear, even though demonstrably it came to the same end, which was, what do you want for your child? We disagree. We think you are wrong. That's still fundamentally what's being said to them. Mm. So in a way, I'm kind of uncertain about the language. In some ways, it makes it much more stark. What you want is harming. But is that worse or better than saying what you want is wrong, which is what you must be saying if you think it's not yeah. best. They're still saying what you want is not best. What we want is best. You are mistaken mm -hmm. about this. Um, but my... I think in maybe in Alfie's case, though, it might have made a difference. There's a, there's a bit of space there for it to have been on the margins of whether it would have crossed that threshold. And if it hadn't crossed the threshold into what they wanted was harming, then it would have, the case might have been decided differently. And mm. I think those are the cases where it might be really important and, and different. Um, and we need to really remember if that's what the parents are telling us. I think the deep irony, though, would be if we change the law in line with what these parents who've suffered so much want. And in actual fact, we end up causing suffering to future parents. It would mm. be horribly ironic if it, if it did that and it didn't help them. So we need to be really thoughtful. And I think this is the sort of situation where someone like me can sit in Oxford and think about it in the abstract, because I'm not the one who's sitting there day in, day out talking mm. to these parents. And I think it's a really important thing to have a dialogue between people like Joe and people like me to say, what will it look like day to day for someone yeah. like you, because I'm also very interested in whether or not it will, as some people have suggested, make the process much less of a collaborative one. What is best for this child? Can we work it out? And turn it into an adversarial one, where the hospital's counsel have to try to show what the parents want is harming. Yeah. It might absolutely change the way in which they approach these cases. If they're trying to do their best for the hospital, which is what they ought to do, yeah. they might have to behave differently to the way they might otherwise have behaved and make it a less constructive process. And that would also be a very, very problematic outcome um, if that's the way it went. So we make a change in the law that we think is going to help parents, but in actual fact ends up disbenefiting them. would yeah. be a terrible outcome. And I think Imogen's uh, words are wise in that respect because one of the instances in which I as lawyer become involved is where care proceedings have been taken um, against parents who are caring for deeply disabled children who um, have... Uh, not suffer by virtue of lack of care, but the criticism of the parents is they're not giving them the level of care they need to meet their potential. And that's been framed in terms of causing significant harm. Um, one of the cases I did in front of Mr. Justice Headley, now retired, where I was acting for a local authority, which is a very unusual position for me to be in, um, was where um, I could see, looking at the papers with benefit of hindsight, that once the parents felt they were being taken to court and their care of the children criticised, they immediately started putting up barriers by not having a dialogue with the social workers, having a dialogue with the care home. And once they put the barriers up, then the local authority relied on that to say, you're not working with us, so you're not acting in partnership. And it became a self-perpetuating battle that became a war between the two of them. And the only way we broke through that was on day one with barristers acting for all parties, and remember the parents were entitled to free legal representation in this way, we looked at it and said, this is not working. And so it was the first instance where, to which we're aware where we positively asked the court to dismiss the care proceedings and instead to continue in wardship, 
which was looking at the matter without blame, but looking at what was necessary in the child's best interests. And once we had lanced that boil, once we had tried to re-educate our respective parties in the language we were using, it opened up a sea of potential to work, which fundamentally changed the outcome of the case. And when I say fundamentally, so fundamentally that the parents and the social workers and the disability teams within six months and 12 months literally have an open door policy to one another. And we're operating, engaging in the best interests for the disabled children that they were managing. So if I reflect on that example, and it wasn't one I thought about when we talked during the week, I think there is power and pain in words being deployed in a way in which a parent understands to be an attack because they don't understand it's an objective valuation. So where does that take us? I think it takes us probably not wanting to change the law, but to assist the law in its current form. Yeah, I mean, I have an additional worry that comes to that as well, mm -hmm. is that what if you have parents in the context with hospitals not wanting to end up in that kind of yeah. situation where they're being accused of harm and then their decisions, their role in the decision-making is undermined? Mm -hmm actually not pushing for things that they would like because for fear of being constructed as not being helpful, being obstructive, yep. being harming, and being on the back foot that you might actually have even more implications. I mean, my, my, I, I feel really ambivalent about this. Every time mm. I talk to a new person, I change my mind again about what I think because it's mm. so finely balanced. It in fact, is. I changed my mind in the middle of my own lecture last time. I started <laughs> by the end of it, I, got, I convinced myself I was wrong. Yeah. But it's because there's so many good arguments on both sides. In fact, that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah. And it's one of those things where we may not really know the answer until we saw it play out um, in practice. Yeah. But of course, we can't do that um, without making the change. So we're in this real complex bind. Mm. I mean, certainly in the, in the ethics literature, um, the preponderance of opinion is probably in favour of a, of a harm threshold. Mm. Whereas in the legal literature, I think it's the opposite. It is, yeah. And from the practitioners I speak to, it's the opposite. Right. So that's a really interesting complexity. Is yeah, the, and it's the hard to the strands. I think the law is, is wrong, but they're not yeah. the ones doing it. Yeah. But they look at things in, you know, we, they, look at things in very different, different yeah, ways. They do. Great. Right, so looking forwards... This is Charlie's Law that we just referred to, which is a significant harm proposal. Bioethics, this document, and achieving consensus. Now, the reason Imogen and I wanted this slide up is because so far what we've talked about is conflict. We have talked about cases that have hit the headlines because it is a situation in extremis. And I think it's really important that anyone that's listening to this lecture doesn't think that the debate that surrounded those cases was simply a flash in the pan because it hit the zeitgeist at that particular moment. Nor must they think that it's simply a question being raised by parents who've been placed in that position because the aftermath of these cases has been really profound. The two documents there, in particular the bioethics one, which I have here, is a document which Imanaj and I were going through before um, we talked about this lecture, and I reread it again before we came in. And it is, a, I think, a really reflective, empathetic um, understanding of why this is such a difficult issue to answer. So, for example, it points out that there is a reason why these disagreements happen. So it talks about communication issues. It talks about differing perspectives and values, exactly what Imogen's been talking about. It's been talking about powerlessness in the feeling of the parents and scope for policymakers to step in and do more because it's not good enough 
to let this situation simply continue, and it can't do. So what it goes through, I think, is one, it points out, this is where I got the figure, figure of 10 in a year, because what this paper identified by speaking to CAFCAS, who are represented representations of the child, is how many cases of this come before the courts. So we're told it's 10, which shows, doesn't it, how many cases are resolved before coming to court. And what it also identifies, I think, really carefully, is about how, when cases work, it's because there is a reflective dialogue, but also because the doctors in the hospital recognise that parents need support. So they need to have palliative care advisors given to them well before the decision is being made about withdrawal of um, life-ending care. Because it's about managing the children's life, not just their death. So if there were the resources to have palliative care advisors coming in before the situation becomes critical, how much better would that situation be? They talk here about having positive support for and training for the doctors so that they try to put themselves in the parents' position and have conflict training. And those hospitals which have imposed that say that from reflection, a good percentage, I can't put down here, I think, oh, 91%, my memory was right, 91% of doctors who had that training had applied it constructively in situations of conflict, so they knew how to de-escalate situations. And that meant a dialogue continued. It enabled the doctors to feel more comfortable about explaining what the range of decisions were they were making and to give access to, to, to research material to explain that respective dialogue. And so what this paper does, I think, by by definition, just by existing, is showing that this is not simply an argument being raised by parents about what should happen. It is a proper debate conducted here between us, with you listening, and hello, everyone on the internet. It's a debate happening in hospitals. It's a debate happening in um, parent support groups. You know what's not happening? It's not happening with the government. And they, the government, the policymakers, are the ones who have the ability to look at what's going wrong in the system to try to decide how they can assist in this critical illness type of scenarios. And there's a good reason why they should. Not only because it's a humane thing to do, but also because if you're looking at it purely pragmatically, the amount of money these cases cost, not just in terms of pain, but in terms of the resources they suck out of the hospital, and an NHS system that's struggling and crumbling under the strain we impose upon it, there is only so much we can expect of a state system. So what this paper does is shows the really lively debate that's happening between the academics, the lawyers, the medics, and the parents is one that benefits from a lecture such as this, is one that will benefit being from carried out in different regions with different hospitals, with parent users groups, and by campaigning groups because I don't believe campaigning groups are there as a threat. I think they're there as an organisation that should be attuned into and listened, rather than being castigated or sidelined. Because otherwise, you end up with a scenario as happened in these cases, where Charlie's Army, for example, camps outside hospitals and does, whether intent or not, I'm sure it wasn't, end up interfering with the process of care being given to other patients there. And is that really the way we want our debate to happen? through the newspapers, where it's a situation of armies being spoken about? I think not. So I would very much like um, to thank you all for being in this hall today, because the fact that it's full 
and the fact that we know it's going to have a lively debate that's going to carry on the internet, and the fact that Imogen has broken out from her schedule to come up here to give this lecture on me is, I think, a reflection of how serious we all take this issue from different perspectives. So thank you to Imogen, if you can extend your thanks to her. And thank you to all of you as well for listening as intently as you have done.